0: Welcome to the space where creators have aligned A positive and intellectual collab of open minds For sharing and learning from one another, it's a vibe We've lost a podcast on the mic Subscribe, Subscribe. Educators spitting bars, I guess you didn't know I'm faceted and humble taking off life goals The classroom is my comfort zone, Where I apart and so Seeds of knowledge, compassion, empathy, and hope Reading is the key to unlocking your potential Countless benefits, including cognitive and mental Regardless of the genre, books are highly influential Go get yours, I'll get mine my- Nice. Make you you Money You're mental. to walk with me and Ooh, get down to this new game. With my friends I had a very simple plan. Educate the masses. through books and life lessons. It's a grand slam. I'm out. Welcome to the Reads with Rossa podcast. Today's guest is an Iranian New Zealand writer, a filmmaker and Fulbright scholar. She has made various award-winning short films, and is a television director for South Pacific Pictures' long-running drama, Shortland Street. She is the author of The Girl from Revolution Road, a powerful collection of personal essays spanning her life in war-torn Tehran, displacement, and her experiences on growing up as an immigrant in New Zealand. Salam and welcome to the show, Gazale Golbash. Hi Rosa, thank you for having me. <laughs> man, I mean, I'm, I'm man, I am so excited to have you here. Like in case you yeah, in case you didn't figure that out already. <laughs> How are you doing? How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. It's nice and hot here. Um, and it's a Sunday evening. I'm just at my folks had a really yummy kai with my mum, she made this really amazing Persian dish, so I'm feeling very fulfilled. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and how is your family, uh, just in terms of like, you know, we're living during this pandemic, mm. I just have a situation, you know, I keep reading about what is going on there uh, back home, uh, how is your family coping through this, um, you know, through these times of uncertainty and worry? They're all good, I mean, again, we're lucky we are we're all vaxxed,
1: triple vaxxed, we're all, um, and, you know, all of us kind of work, have jobs where we can, you know, work from home if we need to. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's a real pri- privilege, you know, a lot of people don't have that. And luckily so far none of us have had it um, in my immediate family, but most people I know have. Um, but, yeah, I think I think we're okay. I think because we're vaxxed, we've got jobs, um, we're not, you know, thankfully we're not. Um, working somewhere where if you don't work you don't get paid you know so it's quite that's a real privilege to have so um it's been okay I think it's been obviously very hard on on a lot of people um and even for me I lost some work last year but it's I think it's affected everyone in some way or another right it's not a I can't say you, you, you can't be in this world and not have COVID have had some impact on your life however small or big I guess
0: right um I guess we'll get straight into it um where to start where to start <laughs> there's so much to unpack today like I have a long list you you wouldn't even know right here on my phone so I was wondering um you know moving to New Zealand at such a young age what were your first memories of the people of your surroundings yeah <laughs> yeah um
1: I mean, for me, my memories come in bursts of either images or moments. And sometimes I had to check with my parents whether or not that was a real memory or if it's just something I made up. But in terms of just images, I remember, um, you know, New Zealand houses all being one story, bungalows, whereas where I came from, it was all apartment blocks. Um, And then the greenery, you know, New Zealand's so lush and green, whereas Tehran, not so much. (laughs) And even now when I go travelling and come back, from wherever, like it could be London or LA or whatever, and you come back and that greenery and that brightness mm-hmm. just really sticks out. Um, and then when, uh, so we left in '87, and that was kind of nearing the end of the war with um, Iraq, and so Tehran was one of the cities that was continually bombed, and so it was kind of the norm to have sandbags at your school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember coming here and thinking, why don't they have sandbags? It's really weird. Like how kind of like to me, it was just the norm, you know, a normal thing to have. And I just remember that because obviously when I got older I was like oh that's kind of a weird thought to have um the the normality is not to have sandbags <laughs> so um little things like that and that's kind of what I remember um and then not knowing the language and in my book I do I, I kind of cover that quite a bit about this the challenges of trying to learn the language make friends um deal with teachers who, who couldn't de- understand how to deal with kids who don't speak the language um yeah so I think those were the initial things I remember
0: um yeah you know this is the book she's talking about everyone this <laughs> is the book. this is I read this you know honestly um I I don't even remember how I came across like I know that after I found the book that's when I connected with you yeah but I I don't know if i read it somewhere or maybe saw it maybe on twitter perhaps and that's that's when i was just like what i've never read you know like i was so curious i was like wow i've never read um you know the story of someone who was not a pacific islander or do you know we we know about our stories you know through our parents and their travels from the islands and i was just like i was so curious so I had to get the book. And then when I read it, I was like, hey, I got to like, <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's when I connected with, with you online. But, you know, for everyone, the girl from Revolution Road, I mean, hello, the cover is amazing. It's so beautiful. Can you just talk a little bit about the cover before we get a little bit deeper into the book? Um, yeah. yeah. Who Whose artwork is this? Or is this something that you came up with or?
1: Um, it's a combination. So when, when I was writing the essays, um, I, initially I was going to call it the Shah uh, of Grey Lynn, which is the first story in the book. Um, mm-hmm. But I, with, you know, speaking with the publishers, I was like, "That that's quite specific. It's very Auckland-centric. People might not know Grey Lynn. And, and then um, one of the other essays is called The Girl from Revolution Road, which looks at um, some of the protesters in Iran, um, mm-hmm. some women protesters who protested against the mandatory um, hijab and they would take to the streets. Um, there was one girl in particular that I write about and she um, stood on this busy street in Tehran um, And it's the street was called Revolution Road and she, would, she took off her hijab and she went quite viral because we were taking photos and videos of her and she was known as the girl from Revolution Road And so I called the chapter that and then we thought that would make a really cool title um, And the picture honestly was was just it was the um, the designer Megan who works with the publisher She asked me what kind of book covers I liked. I sent through some ideas, and there was some with, like, there was actually a painting that was very similar to that, and I think she took that and and came up with this, which was really wonderful. Um, And then everyone I showed was really, loved it. So I was like, okay, so let's make this the cover. Yeah,
0: I mean, I know we shouldn't choose books, you know, based on their cover. I always do. I always do. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I am so guilty of that, you know. I always Then it's don't just judge it on the cover, but then I'm like taking books yeah. shelves it's on the cover, but yeah, I mean, so this, yeah, it's a collection of essays. Um, and there's it was there's something in here that really resonates with me. Um, not just because I'm a teacher now, but because I was that student that you talk about. Um, I was you, you know, that brought back so many memories of teachers just not saying names correctly or not even making an effort. You know, it was about what made them comfortable um, and never about making the student comfortable. So I read that and I was like, oh my, you know, I hated, like I really hated being the name because my last name starts with A. So I was always Uh the first in the class. So you can imagine a gymnasium packed full of, you know, students, and then I'm just sitting there like cringe, like so yeah. nervous because I know they're going to call my name, I know they're going to, you know, say my name incorrectly. But you know, it's it wasn't like back then, it wasn't like you could question that and say, Well, you're saying my name incorrectly,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you'll just get like a detention. You know what I mean? When you question yeah. stuff, you get a detention. So, I man. Oh, that was definitely one of the stories that resonated with me. Tell me about that. I mean, now when you look back, like, goodness me.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it was, I mean, it was interesting. It, it's something like we were talking about just before. It's something you kind of grow up. So when people say my name and they might not get it exactly right, I'm quite used to just being like, oh, that's fine. So, I mean, it is a hard name. I have, a, I have quite a hard name in, in the English language. And even in Farsi, it's not that common. Um, and I, I personally like disclaimer here. I have, I sometimes have trouble saying some people's names that I've never heard of, you know. Mm-hmm. But I try, and the, and the thing is, you have to listen and really make it's, it's a lot of effort, I guess, you know. And that's mm-hmm. maybe why people don't try. But um, so in school, you know, it would be that moment when you, especially if you had a substitute teacher or if you started a new year and you'd be waiting for the roll call, and you just usually they would hesitate and there'd be a pause. Oh. And you, you'd have to, like, jump in and be like, yeah, that's me. Sometimes you yeah. you get a bit cheeky and you'd wait, let them suffer a little bit <laughs> before jumping in. Sometimes i try and come up with weird names. Um, but it was a whole process. And, and, and you know, when I went to high school, I had a close friend who's um, Malaysian-Chinese, and so she had a, a different name. And right. we both joke about it. And she actually had a teacher come up to her and ask if she had a Christian name. Mm. And my friend actually responded, which oh, is hilarious she responded with, well, it's in your alphabet. What more do you want? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It was great. Yes, it was great. Um, But so that was really cool to have other people who kind of got it. And now, you know, I get nicknames of, um, you know, Gaz. I get that as a nickname, which is fine. Um, Mm -hmm. But I've also met people who have, you know, I've had an Irish friend whose name was Ema and people would say Emma. But she made a point to correct them. And that kind of really inspired me. I was like, oh, that's quite cool that you actually stand your ground. And um, Yeah, but I think I, I wish I could say things are changing, um, mm-hmm. but I've heard instances now. So this is going on, on a tangent, but going with that whole thing about teachers not understanding. Um, so in one of the stories in my book, I talk about how I got taken to um, ESL class, English as a second language class, when I hit high school. And by that point, I was very fluent. Um, mm. but it was to do with my name they saw my name on the roll and they just immediately came and took me from the class and as we were walking to the class the teacher asked me something and I replied and she goes oh, oh you do speak English, I was like yeah <laughs> she, Oh, we just saw your name we assumed you didn't so we were taken to ESL class mm. and then my friend, the same friend the Malaysian friend got taken to the same thing, um, another friend in a different school went to ESL class, she stayed for like a month because she didn't <laughs> She found it really easy. But, you know, when this book came out, I had a, um, a a person I know, and she's Iranian, but a lot younger than me, so I would say at least a decade younger. Right. Um, and her sister actually had some issues at school, to the point where the teacher, like, locked her in the classroom as punishment because she didn't understand the language. Um, I had another friend whose um, son has just started school, and she's... Um, got a Korean background but grew up here and her husband is is pakeha New Zealander. And they put him in ESL class immediately. And the teacher's reasoning was because your mother was not born in New Zealand. Like that and so she I mean this is ridiculous. So she wrote an email to the principal and made a bit like mm-hmm. the fact that this is still happening, you know, oh, and yes. it's that's what's it's not surprising but it's frustrating that, you know, I joke about it from you know 20 years ago, but the fact that it's the incidents like that are still happening. So names are important. I guess that's my... <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Names, are, I always say, like, you know, when I go, when I talk, um, when we're having faculty meetings, I just say, you know, names are a part of our history. It's a mm-hmm. part of our genealogy. It's a part of the... It's, it's one layer of identity that our students bring to the classroom. So when you're disregarding or even... Putting in effort or just acknowledging the importance of a student's name, you're basically saying, Well, I'm going to accept these certain layers of who you are and what you bring to the classroom, but I think I'm going to say your name however I want to say it. So, yeah. it's just, you know, I read this, I read your stories about, you know, when you wrote about um, having to look a certain way, uh, having to sound a certain way. And yeah, it's it, it. Sadly, I mean, I I can think of instances even now where you know where I work, and it's just you know when people say, "Oh, you you speak really good English. Oh, that's great pronunciation." And it's like because mm-hmm. you know we're really programmed to uh, to to respond to that real like the societal norm says you should sound like this, mm. you should uh, speak in this way. Uh, you should look like this or this is at least what is expected and it is sad you know like yes names are important um but also you know acceptance of just the different layers that yeah students bring with them uh to the classroom and we need to do better like i mean as i'm speaking as an educator i honestly man i'm sure people at work just sick of me talk about all the time i'm like "You," you know because and you know, like you said, with your Irish friend, and I want the same. Like if I'm saying someone else's name wrong, I want them to correct me. Yeah, and, me too. You know, it's just the respectful thing to do, right? It's
1: Exactly. Friend. Yeah, and it's just practice. Once you practice it, you know it. You know, my friends can say my full name now. It's not, and it, it, it again, it's in it's in the language. It's in the um alphabet. It's just practice, and it's it's a sign mm-hmm. of respect, like you, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah,
0: you know, um. In terms of identity and really trying to figure out who you were, um, you know, you arrive in New Zealand, you, you, and then you're, you know, you're at school, then you're in high school, and how difficult was it for you to balance um, home life, <laughs> um, you know, in terms of cultural norms and and that you know language, and then being at school which you know totally different you know how did how were you able to was that difficult to process was it did you find yourself at times kind of like oh I'm gonna be more the person I am at school and less at home or I need to hold on to this at home oh but at school it's so different yeah absolutely It's, it's
1: such a common thing with immigrant children I think and and you know there are loads of academic articles about this. You know the notion of the different cultures or third cultures or the, mm-hmm. the navigating the space. I quite like it. It's very academic, a bit a little bit snobby, but I love I love that this idea of navigating the, the the spaces between two cultures, but also yeah between your home, which represents your um, your first culture, your parents, your ancestors, and then your second. Um, space which is the, they call it the host land or the new place with um you know which you learn through school and as immigrant children i feel like pretty much everyone i know who was an immigrant child um you are you're constantly navigating or, or, or trying to go between the two sometimes you're more in this one than you are in this one when, especially when you're younger i feel like because you want to be like everyone else um anything that sets you apart is is a cause for concern so you know if you look different if your parents have Accents, which by the way, I, I read somewhere a beautiful quote about accents. Accents are just um, people speaking in a different way to you. Yes. And I thought that was a beautiful way to put it. Um, or like your name or, or something. And when you're a kid, you're so desperate to be like everyone else. And for me, everyone else was, you know, a white Pakeha kid with, mm-hmm. you know, a Christian name. Um, and so it, when I was younger, I, I hated the Iranian side. Um, mm-hmm. But then when I became a teenager and you know when you're a teenager this individualism comes in and and also finding friends that are a bit more like me getting into the arts where it's cool to be different um that's when I first started to really appreciate um the other side of of, mm. of my um the other space um and I began to learn more about that history as well I think that really helped whereas you know I'm not going to learn about Iranian history in the New Zealand education system yeah. which is fair enough because it's not a there's no real historical link between New Zealand and Iran. Um, but when I started doing my own research, and that was thanks to a really awesome history teacher, actually, in, in high school, um, I felt like I was starting to learn more about that side of of my culture and Iran as, as, as a place, as a geography, as, as a um, the history of it, the people and everything. And, and so that kind of helped link me more to that side. And I think that was really important. Um, and. And also in saying that, though, I always think about my parents who came when they were in their 30s and, you know, they went straight to work. They didn't have the privilege of just going to school where you can ease yourself into the new culture. It's a lot harder when you're an adult. And so, again, for me, it was a lot easier as a six-year-old. Like, I quickly learned the language. I, I started speaking in the same accent as my peers. Um, and I would learn through my friends how, you know, things work in New Zealand, whereas for my parents, it was a lot harder, a lot slower. So again, that's also important, but that also brings up other challenges where mm-hmm. you have those generational conflicts, right? Because I'm bringing home what I learned at school with my other friends. I'm trying to see why isn't it done the same way at home, whereas my parents only know what they know from back home. So it was like, you know, mm-hmm. and the challenges that come from that. And again, every immigrant child I know has that. And you see that sometimes done really well in, in certain um, art forms like films, where they make fun of it and you know in a loving way. Like Benedict, like Beckham is a great example of that, or mm-hmm. um, the films I'm trying to make, where you're kind of looking at those challenges, but with but it's coming from a place of love. Even if you're kind of making it a comedy and you're kind of making fun of it, um, mm-hmm. or like something like Celine's wedding, you're looking at like Pacifica mm-hmm. stories on screen. Um,
0: yeah now I'm rambling but no 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 you're fine you are fine yeah because the reason um I wanted to ask is because you talk about this I read in an article um hyphenated cultural identity yeah it's like oh yo okay okay." (laughs) I mean when I read it and I was like I, I feel I get that like I get that that is yeah that's a certainly a different way to look at it like I've yeah, I haven't stopped thinking about that hyphenated culture yeah. identity ever since I read their article. Um, yeah, again, it came from my um, when I was doing my PhD and I looked in a lot of, you know,
1: articles about generational um, uh, difference between immigrant children and, and so on and all the different names that come up. But for me, that one resonated because a hyphen for me means you're celebrating both. So it's not, you know, you're Iranian New Zealander, which means you're both. Um, and both are equally important because mm-hmm. someone like me who grew up here, I spent most of my life in New Zealand, yet I still had that Iranian side, so I can't deny that, you know. Yeah. I quite enjoyed having that as a as a title or a or, or, or something that's a part of me. Um, some people disagree. Some people have other
0: words that they like to use, and that's okay as well. It's up mm-hmm. to you, right? Oh man, this is uh I'm, I'm really enjoying this. I'm taking this all in. <laughs> A lot. Um, you know, earlier you mentioned um the the girl from Revolution Road who took off her hijab. Um I wanted to ask about this idea of um, you know, the uh you know Iranian woman, um, you know, that veil of oppression that you know you know how this miscon these ideas, uh, these western ideas of you know the hijab being you know, like this veil mm-hmm. of oppression, like how would you challenge that that these these Western ideas?
1: Yeah. I mean the whole thing is is very complex. And if you look at
0: um
1: <laughs> I guess the veil becomes uh, this weird visual motif about the Middle East because it's so visual, it's so um, immediate. You see it immediately, you you have some you know um, some assumptions about it, and unfortunately, it's become this kind of logo. I remember reading that in some article, it's become a logo for the Middle East. Um, But it's so complex, like even the different types of veils that they wear across the Middle East. And Iran itself has its own complexities with it, its own complex histories with it, because it became mandatory. Um, And for people, you know, even if you go, you have to wear it, it's part of the law. So obviously there are huge numbers of the population who don't want to wear it, um, who aren't religious, who have no link to it. Um, But once it became an Islamic Republic, after the 79 revolution, it became part of the law. So when people leave Iran, you know, they're coming from a background where it was forced on them. People would get um, punished or, or thrown to jail for wearing it. And so you can imagine why, the, you know, certain people would have a mistrust or a hatred of it. Mm. Um, at the same time, though, when you look at it here, I don't, you know, we, we can't say that every person who wears a hijab is oppressed or be made to wear it. Um, and that's something that took me a while to get used to as well, because I came from that background where I just assumed everyone who wears it is being forced to wear it. But then obviously that's not true. And when you come to places like like New Zealand or in the UK, there are plenty of people wearing it because it's a choice. It's the way that they express their faith. Um, and then it's interesting you bring up the idea of the West and the East, and even that is a construct, right? It's like this idea of, of the, the barbaric East and the civilised West, and we're seeing that again repeated today with, like, news stories about Ukraine or um, people going on about how, you know, the West is civilised, it's like, dude, read a history book. Like, first of all, it's never that black and white We need to stop thinking of it in binaries. Um, but also it's like there were so many things that were made outside of Europe, you know, that Europe then took on. Like feminism is a great example. Feminism was around um, and, and, you know, it came to Europe later and it became mm. part of Europe's society. But it wasn't like it was never around other parts of the world um and it just it irks me when people just think in black and white you know it's like it's like oh we'll go to you know this place and it's not civilized because they, they don't look like us so they don't do the same thing as
0: us it's like oh come on i thought we were past that like it's yeah sadly 2022 i mean i feel like social media just it has made it even worse like it just Ah, oh, just... yeah. Everyone has an opinion, <laughs> and no one has to back it up with facts. That's the exactly. problem. <laughs> it's just you know, like clickbait and that yeah. kind of stuff, right? It's just.
1: It's yeah. a... oh, saying man, that I
0: think it's also good because you get the opposite,
1: right? You get like wonderful shows mm-hmm. like yours, or you get people who previously wouldn't have had a voice. Like it would have only been journalists or mm-hmm. um, people with certain types of power that had access to things like that. So I think it's also important. We need to remember that too. Um, that social media does do good as well it's like the two opposites but it also does horrible things
0: <laughs> <laughs> um so let, um, just I know we're kind of like you know we're kind of I'm not gonna say we're all over the place but it's just <laughs> you know just ticking off things here and there I want to um go back to the book the book of essays what's really cool about this is that it's not I mean I love how you talk about the identity, cultural, the cultural aspects, the family—you know, your heritage, all of that. But I also like that there are other funny, like, stories in here, you know, about dating. About <laughs> that, can you tell us a little bit more about how did you? Um, yeah, how did you decide? Because I know you're a writer, and I'm guessing you have so many stories you could have put in here. So how did you? narrow it down and (laughs) this was it I it was a process of just writing as I
1: went and I was lucky I had the first two stories and I sent them to the publisher to begin with and then I was doing my PhD at the same time so I was kind of in that zone of just writing and thinking of all these different memories that I had um but I ended up doing a lot of it in just four months um because of and also because of COVID I the deadline was like approaching and I was at home so I, I just was thinking about all these different things that irked me or got to me and it was kind of part memoir so I start off you know as a child and then we get to the dating things in my 20s and, and so on and I love that you said that because for me part of the reason I put in the last two chapters which is you know about dating and about jobs various jobs that I've done in my life it was because I kind of wanted to veer away from just the identity um focus the the focus on ethnicity the focus on Iranian being Iranian and being displaced because that sometimes can become burdensome you know the burden on representation is that a you're supposedly representing everyone in your group or community which is never true but also b you can only write about that you can only write about being you know Iranian or, or an immigrant and I just wanted to get away from that just to kind of a, that I could to myself, <laughs> um, but B, also I think it's important because you don't want to get, just get pigeonholed into writing about that because, like you were saying, there's different layers to every person. Um, and for me, I just wanted to kind of explore that other layer and have fun with it, um, and I'm glad it resonated with <laughs> with people, so that's great. Right. I
0: mean, it's just – I love it. I mean, why I've had to mention that is because, like you said, you're not just – like it's so easy to box people in and be like, "This is who they are." But like I keep saying, man, we all have so many layers to our identity, and it just it shows another side of you as a writer. It's humorous, it's funny. Right. But I was like, like this is because when I started, I was like, oh this is oh this is a bit intense." But then it's as that serious, yeah. No, but then as it went on, I was like, "Hey, okay, that was totally unexpected," because if you read. If you look at the cover, you're automatically mm. yo, I feel like this could be deep. But then when I got to the end, I was like, oh, my God, this is hilarious. <laughs> it just As I started doing more research on you, I realized, man, this just speaks to just the different spaces that you move in and what you bring to the table as a creative, as an author, as an artist, you know, like Thank as you. an advocate as an activist i mean it was so cool eh? like i loved it um well, thank
1: you. i think also because like as i wrote those last two chapters in lockdown so maybe i was just like <laughs> was a the pandemic i want to write something more lighthearted and not depressing
0: because we're already <laughs> depressed you know at that stage you were like i'm over it right no whole <laughs> time yeah. <laughs> yeah you know um you went back with your family, you went back to uh, Iran uh, when you were 13, I think. Uh, what was that like to, you know, you had been away for a while and then to go back? Oh my gosh, was that culture shock? Was it culture it was. shock? God?
1: It was culture shock, but also it was weird to see your cousins who you hadn't literally hadn't seen, mm. or at least. 10, 12 years, you know, and and I have a lot of first cousins, um, typical, like <laughs> typical run, lots of lots of first cousins. And um, it was very cool because I finally got to hang out with them and and um, probably meet them, you know, because when I left, we were all under 10. Um, mm. So, you know, you barely remembered. like I remember hanging out and we'd always, you know, whenever there were family get-togethers, all the kids would go off in a room and have play games. And then it was cool to then be at an age where I would remember it. Um, I didn't like it. Um, it wasn't like, you know, for me, when we went, we just stayed in Tehran, we just visited people. So it was a lot of visiting people that I didn't remember. It was having to wear a hijab and not going anywhere fun for me. Um, whereas when I went back by myself about 10 years ago, so I was now, you know, in my late 20s, um, <clears throat> I got to do a bit more sightseeing and I knew a bit more about the history of the place. And it was very cool. and. I, you know, I had some cousins who were still there, and I got to hang out with them. And they're adults now, and they had their own groups of friends. So we'd go to parties, we'd go hang out, you know. So it was a very different vibe to when I went when I was a kid. Um, and I think it, like the city itself changed as well. You know, it's getting, it's still corrupt. It's still, um, you know, a dictatorship, an autocratic dictatorship, but. It, it feels a bit more relaxed since the 80s like the 80s was like the re, the time when it was really strict it was just depressing if you know there was a war going on but I think since the 80s and 90s it's definitely relaxed a bit more in terms of the everyday privileged people who who can live well <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta emphasize that because again like any other big city there are you know different classes of people and and I was lucky that my cousins are all pretty much middle to upper class so hanging out with them was a joy and it was a very different experience to I'm not sure what it would be like if it was a
0: different mm. group. Um, yeah. You know, um, homeland, when you think, um, I ask this question because it's something that, you know, as being Samoan, I, I think I often, you know, um, growing up in the diaspora, and I was wondering what it's like for you because this idea of a homeland, um, you know, you'll see on social media a lot, there's always a lot of beef. <laughs> that sounds crazy. <laughs> a, a lot of back and forth, a lot of back and forth between those who live in the homeland, um, you know, grew up there, and then those I feel like they're just like always looking down on those of us that live in the diaspora. Yeah. Um, but yet You know, growing up in New Zealand and Auckland, you know, we have the church was our village. You know, we grew up um, learning the language at home. That was my first language. We only spoke English at school. You know, we grew up with the culture, all those cultural practices and um, church stuff that was just embedded and taught to us like hard. You know, by our parents, and so there's always this kind of back and forth between what is our, you know, where we belong in terms of the homeland, because when we're there, we're kind of like, we're never good enough, I guess is what I'm saying, and I was wondering, when you think about your homeland, um, you know, we have Aotearoa, but then also back home, uh, you know, in your motherland, like, what? how do you look at that in terms of the motherland, and
1: Mm -hmm.
0: where do you place yourself, I guess, where do you, are you a bit of both, are you because you like you've said you grew up more uh, most of your life has been in Aotearoa um Mm. your thoughts on that (laughs) well it's a great question and it's a
1: topic that I've been looking at personally but also in my work since I began (laughs) um and the reason I went back to you around that time was I was doing my masters in documentary and I thought I'd just take a little camera with me and go back and it was this idea of going back to your home homeland and what it would be like and you know i filmed myself it was it was also it was very you know self-absorbed the whole thing because it was all about me but it, the idea was would i feel like it's my homeland would i have this like epiphany when i got there and i didn't and a part of me knew i wouldn't but a part of me was wondering you know because you you read about how important homeland is people go back and they have these amazing connections and i just didn't have it and i felt stink. <laughs> i was like damn it um <laughs> growing up here you know you're different you get treated right. like different, and you're aware of that but it was funny to also be different back there like you're saying i'm a child of the diaspora i'm not a child of iran full stop mm-hmm. people knew i was i was from um somewhere else that i grew up somewhere else just from the way i spoke class the way i looked even you know mm-hmm. um, and that really made me think and and i think again it comes back to why i like that idea of hybridity is this idea that yes that's my you know ancestral homeland but also I feel like I'm more connected here because my memories are here. Um, And so I I think, again, it's that kind of going back and forth, kind of there and here. Um, I definitely feel more connected to Aotearoa because I grew up here, Um, but then a part of me is also like, you can't deny the connection you have to mm. to your homeland. And in the in the Docker, I would interview people like my cousins who like me grew up elsewhere. And then my grandma, who was just like astounded that I would say my homeland is anywhere else. She was like, Well, it's here, obviously it's here. Like here, <laughs> 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 of course it's here. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, so um, but it's interesting, I think, when you talk about that, again, it comes with that burden of representation and it's When I wrote the book, I really didn't want to write about Iran as much. I wrote, you know, a basic overview, which is like the history, you know, a very basic history of it and and so on, just for context. But I didn't want to write myself in Iran because that's not, there's no authenticity there. Like, I did not grow up there. I can't speak for anyone who grew up there. I grew up here. But also, I think that's important because we need more stories from the diaspora. You know, you've got, Like Lana Lopez said, um, I don't know if you've read her essays yet, amazing writer, amazing book. Again, she's focusing and she's pinpointing, she's like, these are the diasporic stories. Um, It's not about her in Samoa, it's about her here growing up in that community in the diaspora. And I think, again, there's a whole lot of um, stories coming out about people growing up in different diasporas, and I think it's great. And that's partly why I wrote the book as well. I was like, I want to add my voice to
0: that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And like, man, you know, why not? Like, like I said, when I discovered this, I was like, hey, I <laughs> never read of this experience. I have never heard this narrative being told. And maybe I've missed other authors. Perhaps I'm sure I have. But I was just like, so curious. I had to read it. I was just like, mm. because I, I remember, you know, students who were, um, from Iran like I remember but I don't feel like I ever knew their stories really so then to read your your narrative I was like hey and so that was cool and like you said yeah. yes you know we need to be telling these stories um there need to be more of you maybe there's a community of you I don't know More <laughs> our stories coming from um because it just it will resonate with someone even if it's one person. Um, that's still important. Yeah. It still needs to be told. Oh, you know, um, you're a Fulbright scholar. I mean, you did some – you were um, – you was part of that when you went to the Sundance Institute? Sundance? Yes. So I was in um, – I got the Fulbright in, in 2011,
1: and I went to L.A. in 2012 to start a, a master's in film at the University of Southern California um and while i was there because over there you know doing an internship is just part of the, the thing um i got an internship at sundance which um is based in la their headquarters are la so it was really cool when i was in the documentary department reviewing works in progress um it was great fun and i think america is great in that it gives you opportunities because there's so many opportunities you know they have the resources you also don't have to prove yourself like overprove yourself, which I feel like you sometimes have to do in here. Because again, yeah. there's not enough resources. So you really have to be like overqualified sometimes yeah. to get yeah. something. Because there they're willing to take a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that was Sundance, I was just like, oh my God, I get to choose which films we, you know, think are great enough to go to the committee who then decide who gets the funding. So it was quite cool.
0: That oh cool, man, Far Again, out. I think
1: it's just, there's more people, there's more money, there's more resources. Mm-hmm. Sadly, we're a small country here, so.
0: And is that, like, was that the first point where you were like, yo, filmmaking, I could, I I love it. (laughs) Or was it before that? Do you know what I mean? Like, at what point? Yeah, it was definitely before that. I think for
1: me, I'd always wanted to be in film. To begin with, it was acting. Um, And I kind of faffed around with that a bit (laughs) in my 20s. And then I think when I was kind of disappointed with, you just didn't, you know, you just didn't have so much control over your work. As an actor you're literally waiting for someone to give you a role or so forth and and at that time you know things have changed a lot thankfully but at that time it was very hard to get anything as a woman of color um particularly mm-hmm. in third there was just no work there was no big productions coming here you know and so i was just like i'm um, maybe i'll write my own work and that's kind of what started me on that track and did the ma started in doco and i was like oh, actually i quite like you know directing it's terrifying but i think i need to do it again because there's not enough woman woman of color directing um I still I'm still terrified of directing even though I'm doing a lot more of it now but part of the drive is because I'm like I need to do this for my sisters I need to I need to the fear
0: is driving me you know? <laughs> I love that I mean <laughs> wow like so on that on that I wanted mm-hmm. to um you know you are moving in spaces like when we think about film and tv and industry I mean I, I don't know much about it just from what I've read but you know these spaces traditionally I guess like according to what I've read they're they're, they're dominated by like men and like white men and I was wondering about what your experiences have been like I know that um you know yeah, I know you're, like, I love your advocacy for women, you know, for the sisterhood, you know, and all that, you know, representation and voices are uh, amplifying, you know, fem- um, women, you know, in that space. But what, um, yeah, what have your experiences generally been like? Um, is it changing? Is there space for more movement in terms of hierarchy and a voice at the table? or i I think you're
1: you're pretty much saying it i think it's definitely changed drastically in the last 10 years um to the point where people are now like oh my god like the the word diverse has become a (laughs) punching. joke and i'm like i get it but i'm also like you do not remember what it was like before it was atrocious it was very you know you watch anything from the 90s for example (laughs) and and it's very much this The specific demographic, but also the people making it, and I think we're definitely changing. We're not, you know, we still got a long way to go because the people, the gatekeepers at the top, are still that demographic. Mm -hmm. Those people need to change, like the people on the boards, the people on the board of the Film Commission, the people making the choices of who gets funding in like New Zealand on air, or, 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 you know, I'm pinpointing those, and those guys are, you know, doing a lot in order to to help facilitate this change. But I think. That's where we need to see representation as well, not just on front of the screen or or even behind it, which is great as well. But I think, you know, the board members, the CEOs, that kind of deal, I think that's still pretty much in the past and that's something that needs to change. Um, and I think it's great that people are now wanting more authenticity. You know, we've all grown up watching films where you see your culture reflected back to you as this ridiculous um, mm. fiction that has no relevance in reality. <laughs> like I remember watching some film and it was meant to be a bunch of Iranians talking, but they weren't even talking fast. It was like gibberish. And you're just <laughs> like, what? what's happening? <laughs> um, so it, yes, and people, you know, writing, people creating um, films about themselves, about their communities, which comes from an authentic place. Wow. Um, and that's, I think, been happening. And that's really cool to see. Um, I also think the younger generation, I'm making myself sound old, but the younger generation, like the people who are like 10 or so years younger than me, are really not just fighting for that, but they're standing strong. Like they won't take shit. (laughs) And I think that's awesome. Whereas (laughs) we had to kind of, we just didn't have the strength and numbers to kind of fight that as as much as they are. I feel like they're just like, no, I'm not doing this role because Mm -hmm. um, it's not, it's a cliche or it's a stereotype or, or I hate how you portrayed this person and that's not real. And I kind of I love that. Um, so I, I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for the future. I'm hoping it's not just a window that will be shut <laughs> anytime soon. I hope it's actual, um, actual change. So mm. hopefully,
0: yeah. Um, that takes us right to my next question. Um, can <laughs> you tell us a little bit about uh, this is us, which is a short doco series that you. Um, yeah, um, can you tell us about yeah. that? It's such a powerful, uh, yeah, very powerful uh, series.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it was, um, so RNZ put out a um, RFP, which is a request for proposals from filmmakers um, who wanted to create something around the commemorations of the mosque attacks a year later. So the Christchurch mosque attacks in 2019, and in 2020 they wanted to release a series of um Projects that commemorated the Muslim community in particular. Um, So we, uh, meaning being um, myself and my PhD supervisor, who's also a filmmaker, Shuchi Pathari, who's an amazing woman, um, we came up with this idea of doing a series of digital stories, three minutes long, um, where we um, look at a, a different person from the Muslim community, but they're basically talking about something they love doing, something simple. So, it's nothing to do with the attacks, it's nothing to do even necessarily with being Muslim. It was just a way to kind of, a real um, simple way of kind of showing people as people. You know, we had a group, uh, a family who who loved to cook, we had a family who loved to go on hikes, we had a, a woman who's an advocate and she's learning um, Te Reo um, another girl who's writing a book about her um, family who came here in the 19th century. Um, you know and it was all about just simple things like that and we got them to write the narration so I helped a little bit with with that but they you know so it's from them it's their voice we just put it together and we would film it and put it together um and it was quite beautifully done I had it we had an all-woman crew which was awesome mainly POC which was really cool um and even the community helped us like we got to film in the mosque and the men's section in the mosque there's a bunch of women with their headshots filming in the mosque which was great wow. um, and it was yeah it was lovely it was one of the best teams i've ever worked with and the reception to it was great initially we had a lot of backlash from trolls <laughs> the internet trolls um which was a little surprising and, and maybe that's me being naive but i think because it was only a year later it was almost like people were like, oh, are we over this yet? And you're just like, wow, we'll mm. actually do that. Or anything, again, we had an image of a woman in a hijab and the words, this is us, mm. That was very controversial. And I think I mentioned that in the book. Um, and it proved the whole point that we were trying to make with the series, that mm. um, this is us. This this community is part of us. Um, and And we can't continually say things like them, and us or this dichotomy of them and us should not exist because then you're you are saying that these people are not
0: the same as mm. you. Um, yeah so
1: it was it was great um, otherwise it was great and um, a lot of people have have enjoyed it and, and like I said it was really cool meeting the people there and the team that we work with so I was very happy to have had the chance to do that. Mm.
0: You know um, in terms of creative process um, where do you, is it just, is it telling um, real stories? Like, is that kind of uh, what you enjoy doing? Um, you know, are you inspired by your surroundings, people that you um, meet? You know, where does, what is your creative process? Uh, just in terms of writing, um, you know, whether it be stories for a book or upcoming projects or even film. Like um, yeah, where do you get the inspiration from or what is your what steps do you, do you take? It's funny, I
1: just get them from anywhere. I think um, w- when I was younger, I'd write stuff that kind of reflected what I was watching. and then it took a teacher again, you know, amazing teachers, um, who, who was like, why don't you write about your own background? Why don't you write about something to do with you know being an Iranian? And that really set me off on on, on that track of looking at um, my history, the you know, and the, the Iranian culture. And then that kind of led into a couple of projects that I'm working on, you know, that center Iranian characters who grew up in New Zealand. Like I have a feature that's looking at two Iranian women who grew up in New Zealand. They go on a road trip. It's like a coming-of-age comedy. Um, but that kind of came from that. And the story itself, I have no idea how. <laughs> just came up with the road trip idea and over time I added to it I think inspiration the idea I remember reading the idea of inspiration is is not something that can just suddenly come Mm. Uh, usually you might have an idea that you don't understand where you got it from it'll be from something like you know I have to go and be in the world for me to kind of think of an idea like I have to be I'm watching a movie reading reading is really good for that Mm. um if I just stayed in my room in a vacuum, I just I don't think I would ever come up with any ideas <laughs> or being among people. Like sometimes it's a story that someone tells me about something. I'm like, oh, my God, that would make a great idea. Um, and then the hard work is then coming up with um, writing that idea down and adding to it. That's when the hard stuff comes in. And that's where I think you have to be regimented and you have to sit at your laptop for however many hours a day. And, and you know, that's the work. Um but I get a real joy out of it. And again, I read somewhere someone saying, no one loves writing. <laughs> I think <laughs> no one actually writes, loves the process of it. But when you've written something and you're really proud of it and you're excited about it, then that means you're a writer. Like that's the passion there. Your passion isn't from the actual process. <laughs> the passion is once you've done it, the feeling you have. And I think that's how I, that's where I fit. Um, Cause nothing's worse than looking at a blank page, right? We
0: all know that. <laughs> You know, um what's something valuable that your parents have taught you? Like or you know, when you were growing up, what was that one thing that they always reminded you?
1: I think my parents were very supportive of um being ambitious. And I mean that in a good way, like not ambitious in a in a crazy way, but but they were always like, you know, you're better than you think you are. You know, you can strive for the best. Yeah, go do your PhD, of course. Why wouldn't you? You know, there was no um, element of um, no, this is you're not, this isn't you, or you can't do this. Like, yes, there was obviously like worries, especially when I wanted to be an actor, <laughs> but that's quite, you know, that's a normal reaction, I think. Um, and maybe that comes again from the, the immigrant background of, of coming to a place where you're literally starting anew. Um, and therefore, in, in some ways, a lot of possibilities are also there. And I think that's what they kind of gave me. Um, and my dad, in particular, because he had two daughters. He taught me a lot of things that I think most dads would not teach their daughters, like about cars. And he's an engineer. Like <laughs> all we, it, it bless them, because I it just goes one ear out the other. Because I just don't know how any of that works. But um, and just learning how to yeah be independent. I think that's the other important one is learning how to be independent as a person without relying too much on other people. Learning how to like fix your you know change a tire or make a <laughs> really good you know
0: so. All we- things i think that's something important to cast on so you know i this is a question that i ask all the guests um this idea of self-care um you know because it's so easy to get caught up in being busy 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 and uh doing things for others but how do you uh what do you do to take time out and kind of disconnect and kind of treat yourself and take care of you
1: yeah that's a good question. Um, for me, I've been learning a lot about that
0: kind of stuff,
1: um, and I love the idea that being productive is not necessarily the most important thing in the world. That's something that you know a capitalist society has been um, telling us, and ingra- it has been ingrained in our minds. Um, I don't think we always have to be productive. Um, that's that number one. Um, and I think taking time for yourself is important. I need it, I know I always need it because I tend to then recoup. If I'm going, I burn out and nothing good comes out of a burnout. Mm. Um, I'm very good at taking time off, <laughs> mainly because I work, I'm a freelancer, so I work weird hours and I might go hard out for four weeks and then take a month off. Like, And I quite enjoy that. There's a part of me that's always done that and I think I'm just used to it, but I also enjoy that more than just you know Monday to Friday nonstop. I just don't think I'm that kind of personality. Um, but that also means I have to make up my own time and schedule. But I always schedule in some me time. Um <laughs> and you know, turning especially because you're always full of, you know, you've always got something in your mind. And if you're someone who right. has different projects, you feel like you can't shut off. So I always mm-hmm. find things to shut off. Like I'll watch something, like I call it fluff TV. It's TV that I've watched before, like a sitcom, you know, where you don't have to think. It's not depressing. Um in saying that I do also want to say something that I learned over time with therapy, and that when you when you do feel down, you should always sit with it. You know, allow it, allow yourself to be sad about it, allow yourself to be, you know, depressed or whatever. Because if you don't, you're kind of repressing that. And I think sitting with it, acknowledging it is important because normally you feel, you know, and normally if it's just an everyday thing, you will feel better in the long run. You'll you'll kind of move on. Um, and that's I think links to mindfulness which i won't go into but mindfulness i I find super fascinating it's hard it's hard as but i'm trying to learn to to bring that more into my life so maybe that's something i need to focus
0: on this year i needed to hear that i mean mean, it just it's it's just some timely reminders so thank you yeah thank (laughs) you so much you have no idea (laughs) um you know last year you were part of the auckland writers festival you were it was a sold out session for you. <laughs> what was that experience like? It's I mean, terrifying. Wow. <laughs> Not terrifying. I the first
1: ever writers festival I did was in Christchurch and that was quite terrifying because it was the first one, but it was also with another person. So I felt like, you know, I let them take charge because I was just so nervous. And then the second time I did one in Wellington at Burb with um writer and poet Mohammed Hassan, who I who I know. So it was kind of nice. It was like us. It was like having this nice conversation that just felt really good and um, because of that I got invited to the Auckland Writers Fest um, so the gala was I think more um, scary because you had people like Witty and like you know <laughs> yeah you know, people like amazing people there and I'm there with them and we you know I did a little speech um, and and but it went well and then my session um, was with Dan Salmon and, yeah, it was sold out. My mum, my, my sister came and a couple of my friends, so it was quite cool to see them there. Um, it's been interesting because writers' festivals definitely have a very specific demographic mm. and it tends to be um, seniors, <laughs> particularly <Pakeha laughs> seniors, which is great. They're my audience. But, uh, and I think it's because they read more maybe and they have mm. more time to go to writers' festivals. I don't know. It'd be great to get more um, different groups coming through. Um, but, like, I went to a Hawke's Bay Festival and, um, and it was great. We were in this little heritage house and it was just like 50 seniors and me talking about um, <laughs> talking about this. And I found it interesting because I just never thought it would resonate for people outside my own kind of group. And mm. so it's been quite cool to see how people of a totally different generation, totally different background, really, you know, enjoy the book. And, and in some ways it
0: resonated with them as well. So that was amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. If someone read a book about you, what do you think they would call that book? <laughs> I always joke, I, I love this joke about
1: I can't remember what TV show it was on, and he was like, I'm gonna write an autobiography and I'm gonna call it Ghazali. I hardly knew me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that could work. I I, <laughs> I, could work. I, I, so dumb. I love it. Be I, love it. <laughs> I don't want anyone to write a book about me. Not at least not like non fiction. They can write a fiction, that's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you do you want to write um, you know? other genres or you kind of is that something that you're exploring like I don't know Yeah. yeah absolutely
1: I'm definitely that's exactly what I'm doing right now I'm trying to think of I've got this idea that I'm kind of playing with um for a novel which is my next I know everyone wants to write a novel but I'm like you gotta do it right you gotta do it so that's my next um project I can't tell you anything about what it is because I'm still not sure <laughs> but it's you know it's, it's in pieces I'm like how do I make this to so a cohesive thing what is what is this you know um that's at the cool. moment I've got some ingredients that's kind of it.
0: I don't Excellent. know. What that, that's all I wanted to hear. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like, I'll be waiting, like, is <laughs> coming or when <laughs> is she gonna drop her next book? Like, that's cool, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, write, I'll take a note. I'll be like, Rosa, <laughs> Rosa's waiting. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite um in who's your favorite author? But I mean, what types of genres genres do you like to read? Are you a mystery thriller type? A memoir? I did love memoirs. I got really into memoirs for a while and
1: essays, um, particularly when I was writing my own one. Um, you know, earlier, like yeah when I was younger, I was really into the classics. I felt like I had to read all the classics. So I was really into the Brontes and, and gothic yeah. literature like Dracula and Frankenstein. But lately I've finally been reading like contemporary <laughs> works. Um I, I guess I'm not really a genre reader, although I loved um Madeline Miller's Circe is a Circe or Cirque oh, S- yeah, yeah like I really love that I was like this is amazing fun um My Year of Rest and Relaxation I really enjoyed I thought that was really good fun um and then the books by Deborah Levy and she like not so much a fiction I haven't read those yet but she wrote um three books and she calls them like a living autobiography mm-hmm. um, and I really enjoyed those again very different people but for some reason it resonated with me um and what am i reading at the moment um lana Lopez's book of essays mm-hmm. you know Ashina, rose lou there's so many good kiwi um writers who be writing in those kind of spaces mm-hmm. um and yeah and i kind of mix it up with non-fiction like i'm reading hood feminism at the moment mm-hmm. <laughs> which is you know a very serious non-fiction book and then at the same time i've got like a a murakami book which i'm kind of really getting to his stuff so yeah cool and i was just like oh my god why have i not read this person before
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome future goals oh okay before you go to future goals so then recommend um number one book you recommend to other people Ooh! Besides your own book i'm recommending besides my own book yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, think it depends on the, I think the Deborah levy ones i um, always make um other friends read um and what was the one i keep handing out yeah my year of rest and relaxation um i can't think of there was one that i kept handing out to everyone everyone keeps taking from me anyway those, those two definitely
0: yeah awesome i have a question would would you ever consider doing an audiobook i don't know if you know this but i have this i'm uh, i'm such an advocate for audiobooks yeah um, i'm always like telling like when i i'm like any chance you're gonna do an audiobook <laughs> just because i just you know like it's because when i commute it's just annoying to hold a book but i'm always listening to a book so is there any chance in the future that you might do an audiobook or a short like series of perhaps one yeah story. maybe I mean I
1: think someone asked me as well like a friend of mine who does um audio books so yeah maybe I think that'd be quite cool so I think she was like oh you'll have to read it yourself I was like I don't want to
0: read it you <laughs> will have to read it's just yeah. like I, I you know I'm a fan of Audible and I love listening to memoirs that's read by the mm. author it just, that it just, it's like a whole deeper next level, next level yeah. connection, do you know what I mean? Like when you're, okay. and then there are other books and you hear a different offer and it's like, oh, i got to stop this. Yeah, stop yeah. I mean, Not feeling that connection. So I'm excited. Put that on your okay. list. It's on my list. <laughs> <laughs> um, so future goals, um, future endeavours. Um, Are you heading to Hollywood anytime soon? I can't. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I um, we have, well, um,
1: the, the book's coming out in the UK April 7th which is exciting it's already out I think in the US, US. Um, so it's kind of cool and like I said I'm hoping to start another one but I think that's a very much a work in progress okay. mainly because I'm, I've got a lot of film and TV stuff coming up so with Shorty and then um, my own feature film and we just wrapped on an anthology film um, where it was eight uh, sorry, eleven different Pan Asian women, um, and we each did eight stories, and it's all part of a um, the idea of home, and, and, and it's called Kaingo, which is home um, in Mali, and so that's coming out soon, which will be really exciting. Um, yeah, it's always like five different projects on the go because half the time, you know, you either got to wait ten years for it to actually like, you know, um, start work on it, or it, it, you have to drop it. Like it's that kind of thing. You have like five different things development and. Um, yeah I'm exciting I think there'll be heaps happening this year
0: um, and yeah I just need to sit down and start writing that's my <laughs> my thing I think that is so cool I have to I have to ask because I know that there there are people who follow this who are fans of Shortland Street <laughs> <laughs> and and I mean sadly I mean I haven't watched it in so long so I, you know I, I'm not going to lie and say I'm a huge fan because I, yeah. I'm asking for these other people that's so- okay What's it like? It's very you- fun.
1: <laughs> It's a lot of work. It's mm-hmm. a lot of work. It's the fastest turnaround TV, I think, in the Southern Hemisphere. That's what I've heard. And I would oh, believe wow. it because it's it's crazy. It's crazy the number of scenes you do, the number of episodes mm-hmm. you do. It's a machine. There's a whole process. Everyone works, you know, really hard and tirelessly to bring these stories to the screen. But it's just there's a lot there. Um, but it's also a great place to work, particularly um, if you're new. I feel like it's like almost a training ground for a lot of people as well. Um, like for myself, you know, starting directing there, I, I, I went from acting on it to then directing it because I knew they were looking for directors. And now I feel so much more. Um, I feel like I've really honed my skills and, and that, and learning so much as we go along. And and that experience is just so good. You can't just you know learn that at school. Like that's something that. You need to be doing. Um and everyone's great fun and it's it's quite cool to see, you know, sometimes the fans
0: you see, people are so into it. So <laughs> you're like, I love it. I love it. <laughs> like, it. When I'm home, um when we have summer break and I go home. So it's winter there and my family, like my parents, I mean, they watch it like religiously. Oh, really? And I'm honestly I'm so confused because I haven't watched it in such a long time. And they're like, oh, and then this and they're like telling me, updating me like months and months. And I'm just like yeah. I still kinda remember what you told me about last year. Like <laughs> it's they just love it, you know? And I'm just like, I'm so out of the loop. Yeah. It's great. It's going to
1: great places. Like their whole thing has been to diversify um the people on screen and behind the screen. Um, not just with ethnicity, but in terms of gender and sexuality. Like they really kind of um making sure that they the the people who are telling the stories and making the stories are trying to represent as much of Aotearoa as they can which is great because not every place is doing that and I think that's why I'm quite proud to be a part
0: of that that's so cool um so um you know before we uh wrap up the podcast I mean I feel like we could talk for hours and hours (laughs) Hi. I should bring out a um, bottle of wine. We're gonna sit here. <laughs> and crackers. Oh, I am man, uh, oh, I will be smiling all week. This is an amazing experience. Like it has been such an honor to have you on the podcast. I know we've been trying to make this happen and I I appreciate it, you know everyone that comes on the show is super busy so just the fact that you're like here you know giving up an hour or a bit of my time like that means so much to me and man it's such an honor I really just wanted to wish you all the best um for for the rest of this year um we're still only in April um yeah just with future projects and Buy this book, fam. <laughs> it's on ebook. Buy this book. You will not regret it. You will not be disappointed. Um, I'll put this on blast. But um, <laughs> thank you. Book, yeah, I'm you've really been such a good support. Of course, um, support. Yeah, so yeah. Um, thank you yeah. know, just everything that's happening this year, whatever that is. Um, as you've mentioned, some projects. You've got the book. Um, still in the works. Yeah, just wishing you all the best, and um, you know, just go hard. Just keep being an advocate and um you know keep amplifying, you know, BIPOC voices, people of color, women, you know. Oh, I love your work and yeah, I'm such a fan. <laughs> so you also. You and you too. Um and you too. Yeah, I can't wait to see who else you bring on the show. It's awesome. It's amazing um, what you're doing. Yay, thank you. And I guess just before we go, just want to hand it to you just to um, share some final words of encouragement, you know, just for our listeners and viewers, um, you know, yeah, (laughs) inspire us.
1: (laughs) I guess I'm going to say something I always told my students when they'd be like, oh, I want to get, you know, I want to pass this class. I'm like, just do the work. (laughs) you want to get a B you want to get a C do the work that's all it is and that's half the battle is just doing the work if you can you know um do the work find people who support you and you're never too old like you're not as old as you think you are that's what I always say every time I was like turning 30 I was like oh my god my life is over no <laughs> <laughs> you're never you're never as old as you think <laughs> um to do what you want to do so that's my words of encouragement